This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock, Pasternak, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, Sputnik, Joe and Light, Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, full of English people speaking like this, Katie. What have I done? Hello and welcome to episode 62 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's a number one song, that's a skip and a trip around the story of the post-war world. Our guru is Billy Joel, our mission is to feed our heads and our pledge is that together we shall learn without ever feeling like we're really learning. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, where are we going today on our travels? We're going all the way to the bridge on the River Kwai. Now, Katie, there are some filthy lyrics that I could sing along to that that every child in Britain learns <laughs> and, at a formative age. And do they involve testicles, I hope? the Yeah, one particular testicle belonging to Adolf Hitler and where its location is supported is meant to be. Oh, I say. It's the Albert Hall if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> and is this a song that is a patriotic uh, sentiment of sorts? Yeah, I think it's a sort of lyrical and melodic two fingers at uh, the evil dictator. And, and because this film is set in the Second World War, albeit very far from Europe, I think it has a resonance. It certainly does have a resonance. Uh, the bridge on the River Kwai uh, is a reference to the greatest engineering project of World War II. It's the Thailand-Burma Railway, which was the vision of the fanatical and ruthless Japanese Imperial Army, if I could characterize them that way. And the, uh, the project was a 250-mile track cut through dense jungle that was supposed to connect Bangkok and Rangoon using prisoners of war and local slave labor as manpower. And it's estimated that 100,000 men died. Uh, so this is quite a thing. However, the film different kettle of fish it's a long film katie but it's a classic film it wins seven oscars we have both re-watched this film recently in our diligent preparation for this episode what were your thoughts second time around well first time around for me because i've never seen it before oh. and i was really surprised tom because i think my perception of it going in was based on that jaunty whistled song that may or may not contain a bollock <laughs> is that the right pronunciation yeah that's very good yeah. okay so uh yeah so i think my thought going in was that it was a kind of a rah-rah patriotic film yeah. filled with um just the dauntless uh, british spirit and uh vanquishing the enemy but in fact it's a lot more psychological and dark than i thought yeah. How about you? What was what were your thoughts? Yeah, as I watched it again, my feeling was that every single British character in it has a rod stuck right up their ass. <laughs> <laughs> every single officer, Katie, speaks in exactly the same way, that invisible trace of emotion, as if there's some sort of robotic version of an army's officer. <laughs> Just watching you speak like that with your jaw clenched the whole time <laughs> makes my masseter muscle ache. <laughs> Rescue me from this. Our expert, our expert today is the film critic, author, and editor-at-large of Empire Film Magazine. And she's also the co-host of the Empire Podcast. She is Helen O'Hara. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> so can you describe the world in which the film is set? What the heck is going on there? 
Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's sort of, as you said, really, it's uh, the middle of World War Two. You've got these British prisoners, mostly British prisoners of war. There's a couple of Americans in there for box office reasons. Yes, um, always mostly, important. Very important. Uh, mostly British prisoners of war who were probably mostly taken in the fall of Saigon um, because most of the British prisoners of war in Burma were. They are working on this railroad. They are forced to work and alongside the hundreds of thousands, as, as you said, of, um, of local people who were also dragooned into this job. It starts off as this kind of battle of wills between the British commander, played by Alec Guinness, uh, Nicholson is his name, and the Japanese commander Saito, played by Sasue Hayakawa, and then turns into something else basically as the film goes on so it's a, it's a really fascinating film it's it is one that stands up precisely because as you say it isn't jolly hockey sticks yay the british it's much much more complicated and much much more subtle than that i was wondering if you could give us an insight into some of the incredibly harsh conditions that were suffered by the POWs and the the slave labor under the Japanese because they were notorious. They were, yeah, 100%. And I think uh, it's interesting, actually, what this film has been criticized for because I think as a, as a character study and as a piece of filmmaking, it's a masterpiece. As a piece of history, it's based on essentially a fictional book. Even though the author was a prisoner of war, the book is essentially fictional. And, and this is essentially fictional. I managed to piss off every country involved really? in, in basically mm. but but yeah the conditions were insane you're talking working in a jungle with inequ- inadequate food inadequate medicine inadequate shelter um you know rain humidity mosquitoes leeches in any body of water the, all the terrors of the jungle basically dengue fever every fever going basically um which is mostly what kills the the troops both the prisoners of war and the local people who were forced to do this um if anything the, the film while giving you an impression, I think it's quite good at giving you an impression of heat and and the the, the sort of oppressiveness of the jungle. It, it still can't get across the whole physical horror of what you know people were going through. I feel like if this was shot today, you'd probably get you know footage of like separating wounds and people sweating themselves to death essentially in the in the makeshift hospital and that kind of thing you know it, it, it I mean, was actually ha- much more horrific than than what they showed i us. mean i have to say looking at william holden looking rather buff yeah. the american soldier he's been doing a few setups he's been doing a few pull-ups and uh he's looking quite chunky in the peck department yeah, that is not a guy who's been skipping his protein and no. uh, everybody <laughs> in the jungle was skipping their protein they yeah. were lucky to get some rice every day you know so yeah it, it's a little bit kind of glossed i think in that just because to show the full horror of it would have been too much for audiences in 1957. And did those audiences, Helen, were they aware of the true nature of the backstory? Were those stories have percolated through? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, definitely this is something that had been commented on. This is something that had been talked about. But the horror of World War II was so overwhelming that this would have been one of the stories reported, but you wouldn't necessarily know it you know a lot about it and in fact even nowadays if you ask people about you know world war Two in southeast asia this is one of the things they'll talk about but it's because of this film you know people don't know a lot about the fall of saigon people don't know a lot about all the other things that were happening in that part of the world and i think mm. that's you know we tend to be european focused over here but um but it is it is slightly glossed over i think Tell us a little bit about uh, the original book that the film was adapted from, Pierre Boulle's 1952 novel. 
Um, what, and you say that he was a prisoner of war as well. Yeah, he was uh, taken by the Japanese, but not he didn't work on the railway, is my understanding. Okay. Um, now, he's an interesting guy. He also wrote Planet of the Apes, the book that Planet of the Apes was based on. Um, and, and his book has a different ending, and it has a slightly different take. And he, he, he kind of wrote it not so much about the British, even though he wrote it about British characters, he was kind of satirizing the French officers who collaborated with the enemy because that was what he knew oh, as a Frenchman. I see. So, so he kind of twisted things around. And um, there was a real com- uh, colonel, I think, uh, Saito, who was actually relatively one of the nicer hmm. commanders in the area, which is not saying a huge amount, as we've discussed. And the railway itself, by the way, ran alongside the river for most of its run. It it crossed a river at one point, which wasn't called the Kwai, and which, which they've actually renamed. Hang on a second. I'm not kidding. Revisionist history. Yeah, they have renamed it to reflect, I think, this this film and its fame. So it should have been called Bridge Over the River, which isn't the Kwai, but is now the Kwai. That's exactly yeah. it. I, okay. I don't know why they didn't. It's so, it's so catchy. <laughs> it is catchy. <laughs> so was it an obvious topic, Helen, to make a film about? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... In some ways, no. You know, in 1957, you're still kind of mostly getting the boys' own version of the war. You're still kind of getting the heroic, jaunty, stiff upper lip version of the war. And you're only just beginning to get into anything more complicated and and sort of nuanced than that. So it wasn't an absolutely obvious one. And the fact that you have this officer who kind of collaborates, essentially, with the enemy. Again, that's not an obvious Well, this thing. is what's so interesting, because Alec Guinness's character is trying to walk this tightrope between mm. keeping his men occupied and psychologically somewhat engaged and healthy, but also has the effect of appeasing the enemy yeah. by doing their work for them. That is going to assist their war effort. And he's based somewhat on a real character who did absolutely the opposite. Mm. So that must have been, you know, the real character was somebody who was trying to sabotage the the Japanese war effort. So I understand that this would have been something that would have been extremely offensive to the British army at the time. It it was. I mean, um, several of the British kind of military consultants in the War Department refused to help the film, refused to be involved. And one guy had been a POW in Burma and was like, I'm not I'm not touching this one with a barge ball. And he was in he was in charge of the War Department's sort of press office at the time. Alec Guinness, one of the times he turned it down something like three times before he took this role. (laughs) And and he said at one point that it was because he felt it was anti-British and as did several other British actors who were offered the role. So it wasn't without controversy. By the way, the the Japanese also find it offensive because the Japanese find all this chat about British engineering being better and the the Japanese efforts to build the bridge being fundamentally unsound. They find that offensive. Well, yeah. Because, you know, they can engineer. Like, you know, say what you want about their conduct during the war, but they're not bad engineers. (laughs) Well, no. I mean, they have a mountainous country and there's trains zigzagging all over the gosh darn place. Yeah. So, yeah, there's something to offend everybody. And yet... And yet, all of these things are the psychological underpinning, setting up the dissonance and the friction and the disharmony between all of these characters. Another interesting aspect is the fact that the film was adapted from the book by two blacklisted Hollywood Mm. screenwriters. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Carl Foreman actually was the first one to pick up the book and go, oh my goodness, this is a movie. And he he was already on the blacklist, so he knew he, he wouldn't be writing it under his own name. He brought it to the producer, Sam Spiegel, who was 
absolutely essential in getting this made. He was absolutely pivotal. And he saw instantly, yes, this is a film, this is a movie, it's going to be great. But Foreman's script, by all accounts, was not very good. And apparently he lost a lot of what was good about the book. And yeah. I think I think he did turn it into a bit of a boy's own adventure and sort of went the obvious route. Oh. So David Lean, who by that point was was getting involved, uh, again, not the first choice director, but he was coming in. Um, Sam Spiegel sent him the script and he was like, this is terrible. I like the book, but no. Mm-hmm. So they tried a number of other writers, all of whom fought with, with Lean, who was very involved as a writer himself on most of his projects, and finally hit gold with, with Michael Wilson, who ended up um, writing the script with Lane, who felt he always felt he should have had a script credit as well. Well, the they way. didn't. Neither of them got a script credit neither, until no. 1984. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is the problem because Wilson, as well as Foreman, were on the were on the Hollywood blacklist, could not work under their own names, mm. and it was a real worry that the studio and the wider world would find out who had written the film. And and you know, so Lane was kind of giving off about the fact that he hadn't had a credit because he thought at least he should have a credit. He sure. wasn't on the blacklist, and um, and sort of said something about his role at the BAFTAs and got in real trouble with Sam Spiegel because he was like, you can't say that because then they'll ask who you worked with and oh. I can't say, I can't answer that. So it was it was fraught. Yeah. Katie, this is one of the points that we get on our podcast where a seemingly completely disparate stories suddenly intersect because yeah. this is bringing back all those memories of Joseph McCarthy. Yes, mm. yes. Um, so it's really McCarthy who is behind the red scare that leads to both these scriptwriters being blacklisted and ending up in England. Yep. Yeah. Um, Red's under the bed, baby. And the other connection I found, Casey, is that Carl Foreman, uh, he writes um, the film that Marlon Brando first becomes famous for when he plays a paraplegic soldier. Do you remember we talked about that yes. with Jonathan Ross in our Brando episode. Oh my gosh. I, I need to get out the, the whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The complicated whiteboard. <laughs> yeah. start, start tying pieces of red string across the room. <laughs> That's and, it. Yeah. I want to talk about that iconic opening scene with the whistling. What does it signify? Why do people love it so much? I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of still in the culture, that song, isn't yeah. it? I mean, I think we, so. we sang it in school, did you? Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it's a catchy little ditty. Um, it's like a song that British people would have known growing up. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think it was around, it, it started, I think, just before World War II. I think it was already, you know, poking fun at Hitler, but certainly when the war got started. It's almost like a music hall kind of yeah. ditty or something. The song had been around for longer. The song was World War One, I, I think. And okay. then the lyrics, I think, came later, obviously, referring to Hitler because he wasn't around particularly. No. Yeah. Um, with or without both his testicles. With, yeah. a, with or without his testicles. And then it goes through the testicles of all the German high command, basically, mm. if you listen to all the lyrics. It <laughs> that really is, is quite it's a bully, a base of yeah. Balls. <laughs> a lot of balls. Um, but they, I think they thought that um, even though the, the censorship standards in Hollywood were relaxing by the late 1950s, getting the actual lyrics to the song in still would have been problematic. So mm. I think it was something that, I think it was Michael Wilson was like, we could sing it. And David Lean was like, no, we can whistle it. That's going to be about as far as we get. But what about <laughs> this story? I heard the story that um, Lean had improved it. He, he said, look, guys, extras are not marching in time. Yeah. Get your act together. Let's just whistle a song. So is that... I read both things. So this is where I confused myself by reading too many books. Um, So I... (laughs) Easily done. Yeah, I read one which said it was in the script and one which said he improved it on the day. Yeah, whatever makes the best story in the end. I will say, by the way, that lots of those extras, lots of those British prisoners are actually Sri Lankan extras who are in whiteface. Whoa. 
Well, do you know what? I wondered oh. that because I was thinking, how have they got all these white actors to look so... Skinny? Well, skinny and brown. That's what I was thinking because you can oh. see ribs. Mm. A lot of the time when these lads are working yeah. on the railway, you can see ribs and very, very lean muscle. Yeah, I think I think that's probably just local Sri Lankans in 1957. Right. So I didn't expect Kwai to be such a dark movie with so much emphasis on psychology. Mm. Um I want to talk about all the power plays that are going on between the Japanese and the British commander, between the, the Brit commander and his men, and then also uh, the American prisoner of war's attitude, William Holden. Yeah. Um, for me, that is the most interesting thing in the movie because it almost seems like there's a sexual chemistry between the British commander and the Japanese commander. There's such an intensity between them. I mean, I, I, can, I get the intensity for sure. Um, and I will say that Sasuya Hayakawa was a massive sex symbol in the silent era. He was a he was a, a matinee idol. He was a real. I mean, if you look up pictures of him as a young man, he was a super handsome dude. Well, I was already picking up some vibes from this thing, so <laughs> I don't have to go back to World War One to get my yeah, rocks off. He was, yeah, he, he was beautiful. Um, so, so I mean, yeah, you can read that into it. I I, I kind of feel like it's stretching a little bit just in the context of the movie because of that stiff upper lip and because of the chasm between them in terms of uh, in terms of their societies apart from anything else in mm-hmm. terms of the internalised shame that they both have in terms of the the internalised uh, revulsion they have for each other's cultures to yes, an extent that's you know? a good point but you know what hate sex well there you go they also <laughs> come together over so to speak um, <laughs> over a forced uh, dinner don't they, they where do, yeah. there is some whiskey drunk mm-hmm. um, what's the food served but they, they they try and bridge that cultural divide don't they yeah that um, battle between Nicholson and Saito obviously gets pretty graphic and if we've got Steve McQueen the greatest escape going in the cooler mm. Alec Guinness goes in the oven yeah the scene Helen when he's been locked up in this little tin box for a number of days and out he in the leaves, sun yeah. out in the baking heat yeah and he is the door is opened they use the mallet to get rid of the the um, stakes keeping him in place and he walks out this is a huge scene in oh, film. I love the scene yeah. apparently it's Alec Guinness's favourite of his own moments of performance he thinks he thinks all right i nailed it there what that do was you good. think because katie and i have had a brief argument about yeah, this yeah and, and let's and let's describe <laughs> the scene that he comes out he's released uh blinking into the sunlight he's been locked into this uh tin little uh shack for several days stand out stand out and he does this extraordinary supermodel stomp uh, across this uh, terrain in front of his men where he's desperately trying to keep his head held high and walk with pride, but he's a broken man. Mm. So his whole body is rebelling against this attempt and it's almost John Cleesian in it, almost a silly walk. But it's absolutely heroic. So yeah, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly that. I think his, he's he's staying on his feet by pure willpower his muscles have nothing to do with it that is all willpower that's keeping him upright and i, I think it, and it is a weird walk he, he apparently really modeled it on his on his son who had polio when he was 11 oh. and this was his son's walk when he was kind of trying to recover from polio that's intense yeah because it's almost like he's sort of mocking his 11 year old son he's or... got the stiff legs hasn't he yeah. Yeah. you're right helen it, it does look because he's trying to stay 
really upright. He doesn't want to let his upper body lean at all. He doesn't want to let his chin drop. Mm. But you can see him fighting with every step to consciously swing his legs forward. Exactly. So we were talking about this, Tom, and you were not convinced about this. What was your thought about it? I feel bad now, Katie, but I felt watching it, it was slightly hammy. And there is the climactic scene, which we'll sh- we shall get to later, um, when he also does a uh, particular walk slash stagger, yes. which is also has elements of hammer bounce. Musical. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But Variety no, I feel, show. I feel slightly harsh because acting was a different game then. It Ellen. was. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think yeah, there's, there's something to be said for that. I think what people expected of performance in 1957 was maybe different than the choices they would make now. Tom, say. I felt like that walk scene was so intense because especially contrasted with him being so uptight mm. and so like ramrod up the that when it came to that crazy Frankenstein's monster slash Linda Evangelista stomp, <laughs> it was uh, like repulsive funny and moving i found it very moving yeah yeah Yeah, i love it he's very good you know alec and apparently he had to be talked out of playing it a little bit for laughs because he was he was okay i know but like for the for the sort of what 10 years before that he'd mostly been doing ealing comedies oh this is an interesting context for this so so you know he kind of went in and he's like oh well i can inject a little bit of humor here and a little bit here and david lean was just like no (laughs) (laughs) does he sometimes misread roles then alec guinness because he many years later when he's obi-wan kenobi he's not overly keen on those films no particularly the dialogue of George Lucas I mean in t- kind of fairly, fairly yeah. kind of fairly <laughs> what I think is really interesting when you read about this film is uh, Lean and Guinness often clashed yeah, even though they worked together a number this. of fit times it, yeah. it almost all Lean's big films isn't it at that stage yeah which great expectations he'd done great expectations and a twist that sounds right, but I'm blanking myself. But yes, Zivago, which is Katie. We that was yeah. still to come. That was still to come, wasn't that was it? Still to come. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they did get along, but but yeah, they also so clashed. they they clashed on on how uh, he was to play the character. Mm-hmm. So so Lean was. This is what you were saying that Lean wanted him to be a little more. Yeah, just serious. He also suggested a Scottish accent at one point for Nicholson, and I think Spiegel said no to that, but Lean was very much with him in okay. saying no. He was like, that would not help the box office. Let's not do that. Wow. Um, so there were there were those kind of uh, clashes. I think there were eyebrows raised because um, Lean brought his mistress with him to Sri Lanka. He was going oh. through a very expensive divorce at the time, which is one of the reasons he took the film. Um, and, uh, and you know, Spiegel didn't really approve of wives and girlfriends on set. So Don't bring your peace. Issue. Yeah, it was. there was a lot going on, basically. And then it was just like a physically difficult shoot. You know, yeah. Lean would put them in the water. He would put them in the jungle. He, Spiegel did bring in good catering for the shoot Very to important. try and keep nice everybody healthy. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, but otherwise, you know, it was it was hot and there wasn't a lot of air conditioning in those days. And, you know, it was a difficult shoot. They were there for something like six months. And speaking of bringing your piece on set, uh, in a 1988 interview with Barry Norman, Lean confirmed that Columbia almost stopped filming after three weeks because there was no white woman in the film. This is true, yeah. So this what is... was the story there? Basically, Harry Cohen, who was the head of Columbia, was not 100% keen on the film ever, right? And he was like, why have we given Sam Spiegel... $2 million to go off to Sri Lanka or Ceylon as it was then um, to make this film this is crazy so he was he was very sniffy about the whole thing but Spiegel had won himself a bit of manoeuvring room with, with recent hits like you know on the waterfront so he, he had gone and done it he actually went $800,000 over budget as well anyway um, so Cohen was 
sceptical in the extreme and he absolutely insisted there had to be a white woman in the movie. Because what, we couldn't get off to love no. brown-faced lovelies? No. This was, I mean, this was still the case where, so this was still at the very dawn of Hollywood censorship beginning to slightly loosen the rules on miscegenation, which is interracial relationships. So this had been brought in by the production code in 1934 when that started to be enforced. Basically, from that point on, you could not, in a Hollywood studio movie, you could not show any kind of interracial relationship. Even if the white person was playing in blackface or yellowface or anything else horrific as that is, you still couldn't have them opposite a black actress or a, a Chinese actress or anything else. It was horrifying and it, it crippled the careers of great, great stars. You know, Lena Horne, Dorothy Dandridge, you know, all of the anime Wong, great, great stars. They just weren't able to find any films for them to do because they had to be opposite someone of their own race. Mm. Um, and we were only just beginning to get past that in 1957. I think that was the same year that Island in the Sun came out with Harry Belafonte and Olivia de Havilland mm. as a couple. But they were only allowed to hold hands. Mm. Because we'd had The King and I, Helen, but oh, that yeah. was slightly different. That was, I mean, you'll see very little physical affection between those two because, of course, it was the 19th century and it's, again, stiff upper lip and very, very reserved people. It was actually kissing. It was actually sort of putting their arm around each other that was that was really the problem. Apparently, uh, on Islands in the Sun, uh, Olivia de Havilland told a story about there was one today where Harry Belafonte touched her arm somehow in a scene and like filming stopped and they had to retake the scene because uh, this was not okay. Well I would just like to point out this little freeze frame that I have here and this is from Bridge on the River Kwai and we see one of the local ladies, very beautiful mm. Thai woman um, assisting a white soldier. <laughs> the, the, the still you've got there, Katie, is is particularly phallic, isn't it? it he is holding aloft uh, some sort of... A mortar, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say a pipe. Uh, <laughs> at she's a loading his pipe. Is, she's loading his pipe. He's holding his pipe at a jaunty angle, and she is putting ammunition. I will call it ammunition in quotation marks. But anyway, so in other words, there could be a little suggestion that there is um, s- some sort of intimacy going on, at least in the battleground, if not mm. in the bedroom. Yeah, I think I think those women, those sort of four featured women in, in those scenes, and they do go on the commando raid. Yes. Um, and, and they have something approaching almost parts. Not much in the way of dialogue, but at least they have a presence in the movie. Poor Anne, I think it's Anne Sears, who played the love interest for William Holden. Well, who, who was just roped in. It's roped like, in, yeah. get a white lady. Yeah. And she's saucy nurse, is she? She's, she's the, saucy. the saucy nurse yeah. on the beach. Um, yeah, so she... When, <laughs> she he, when William Holden gets... He's leaving. Yeah, he escapes. He escapes, that's it. And actually goes to... And that is Sri Lanka playing Sri Lanka. He actually goes to the British holdout in Sri Lanka. Oh, yeah, in Colombo, isn't he? In yeah. Colombo, yeah. So he is there on the beach with this nurse um, playing around very sort of, you know, from here to eternity, I thought, that scene. In the foamy surf, yeah. In the foamy surf. Um, and, uh, and yeah, she's lovely, but she's brought in for apparently two minutes. She, by the way, she was, you know, recruited for this role quite late on, was about to be flown out to Sri Lanka, asked around to see, does anyone know anything about Sri Lanka? Like, what do I need to expect? And um, I was told, oh, yeah, this guy's just come back from filming there. He can give you some advice. And it was Alec Guinness. <laughs> oh. So he talked her through, yeah, what, what she could expect. The one thing I would say about that, I've been to Sri Lanka. My, my sister-in-law is from there. Um, Colombo to Kandy, which is where the botanical gardens and the Is that the in the commando, mountains, It's in the mountains. <laughs> it's quite a long way for him to go in an afternoon and back again. <laughs> so it really does feel shoehorned in, that whole scene on the yeah. beach. Yeah. 
I'm getting a little overexcited at this stage. I'm about to pop a wheelie. So uh, let me get my enthusiasm under control, Tom, so I don't scare the horses. And let's take a break for some commercials. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. Katie, there is a particular climactic line which Alec Guinness comes out with, which you and I have been peppering each other with over the course of today. Would you like to go first? What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? <laughs> what have I done? He, be- he can't even move his jaw. What have I done? What have I done? <laughs> I want to teach a parrot to say that. <laughs> and it is, a good, it is a good question to ask yourself, I think, on a daily basis. <laughs> Just... Mine would be more like, what have I done? Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the what have I done mm. scene. So this is um, at the very end where uh, hell is kicking off. Mm. It's all go- it's going to hell in a handbasket. What are we seeing here? Yeah, so the commanders, the British commanders led by, and British and American, I suppose in this case, led by William Holden Shears, finally turn up, get to the bridge just in time. They've set the the mines and everything on the bridge. Uh, the train is coming. We can hear the whistle. Choo-choo. It's coming through the tra- trees. And Nicholson spots this problem in the water and alerts Saito. And the two of them go down to the river's edge and they're tracing this line they can see in the water to the kid with the charger. Yes. And they're about to discover him. And you've got Holden on one side of the river. And I forget his name. Oh, there's so many men in this film. It's really <laughs> yeah. hard there's to a lot of men. men. The other man up on the, man on the bridge. Man number four. Man number, yeah, man number four who's got the, the heart, the bad leg. Um, he's up on the ridge, unable to help. And they're just like, oh my God, just blow the bridge already because, ah. Yeah. And, um, and the kid, credit to him, is waiting as long as he can. Saito and Nicholson arrive. Uh, the kid kills Saito. And then Nicholson goes for him. He's like, he's so in this crazy thing. He doesn't realize until Shears turns up and says, what are you, you know, you're an idiot. We're here to blow yeah. up the bridge. That he kind of begins to realize. But Shears by that point has been shot and is dying. And so after the delivery of the line, mm. do it. What have I done? What have I done? <laughs> <laughs> He uh, does another uh, John Cleese funny walk. Yeah, so this is considered to be ambiguous. I personally don't think it is, but it's been described as an ambiguous ending that he basically staggers towards the detonator and falls on the detonator and that that blows up the bridge just as the train arrives. Just conveniently right on that plunger and his head goes boink. But the thing is, I don't think it's convenient. I think he's 
I think he's walking towards it. I think oh. having realised what he has done, oh, yeah. he is forcing himself towards the detonator and it's oh. a last gasp attempt to undo what he has done. That's certainly how oh. I saw it. That's, that's how I've always read it, but apparently it isn't meant to be ambiguous. And, I just and everyone... got a nipple hard on when you said that. <laughs> and so that's how I know that we're saying something that's very important. <laughs> how would audiences have reacted to that moment, Helen? It went, I mean, this played like gangbusters. This was Huge, a massive, massive hit. It was, I think, the top grossing film in the US and UK and Germany and France, I believe, in the year it came out. Like, it was massive. Funny story. Japan? Um, how about how about Japan? You know, I think it even did pretty well there. I, I, I'd have to look it up, to be honest. They'd but, be like, There's, look at our boys. <laughs> look at our guys. <laughs> They're so ruthless and sadistic. <laughs> but no, there was... Uh, so William Holden was the highest paid member of the cast or crew, right? He was he was a big box office star at this point. He was coming off like Stalic 17 and all this kind of stuff. And um, so he had a, a, a deal that was something like $300,000 up front and then 10% of the gross once it went over $2.5 million. So that's a lot. And But he also had a clause in his contract that they couldn't pay him more than $50,000 in any one year. So he wouldn't, you know, of that gross figure, so that he wouldn't be hit with a huge tax bill like at it. any point. Can yeah, he? here's the problem, though. The film made so much money that they ended up with this massive backlog of money for William Holden. So they were earning more on the interest than they were paying him every year because they had something wow. like two million or more dollars in this William Holden fund and he was getting it $50,000 at a time and they were earning $100,000 <laughs> interest. You know, it was this crazy, crazy situation. Yeah. Um, but it's but it's testament to no one thought the film would do that well. They knew it was going to be good, but they didn't know it was going to be that good. I'm wondering, um, you know, I'm kind of stuck on the sexual chemistry idea between <laughs> Nicholson and Saito. Uh, kiss already, you guys. Um, but I think what's dancing around in the recesses of my frontal lobe is the 1983 film, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And that's mm. with David Bowie and Ryuichi Sakamoto. Mm. And that also had, uh, you know, a f- power struggle between a British officer and Japanese officer. So I think that's why I go to the dirty place. Yeah, and there's also that one, is it Enemy Mine, where there's, a, um, I think, an American and a Japanese is it airmen who are, who are marooned together on an island, and they have to work together, and they have to kind of, you know, get along, basically, mm. to survive. So there, there, there are these kind of stories. I think there's always something in it, you know, when you're in a position where you're told somebody is your enemy, and then you have to find a way through um it's always kind of it's just always emotional isn't it it's always it's always effective on screen i think that you've just hit on why it's such a timeless film Mm. because uh we never get tired of the stories and those are dynamics that are inescapable in our life and you know we're seeing it playing out you know right now in the conflict in ukraine when it's uh brother against brother yeah yeah it's the pacing of it as well i think helen Mm. So watching it this second time, initially I found it quite heavy going and then I relaxed into it. I relaxed into the pacing and also the way that, I mean, the score is re- is a really good score, it's isn't it? It's a really it? good score, yeah. But yeah. there's also lots of times where you're just here in the jungle, mm. which is really atmospheric. Yeah, and I think I think David Lean is, is, well, he's a very good director. This is not news to anybody, but like <laughs> he is really good at knowing when to play the emotions big with the music and also just went and dial it back to nothing and just let things be for a moment and just give you that atmosphere and that kind of silence i was i was listening to somebody else today describe it as a really good sunday afternoon film you know it's, it isn't yeah. hurried you do take your time with it it is over two hours but it's not 
indulgent. It's just sort of taking the time it needs. It's not Tarantino indulgent, is it, where you watch it and go, you could probably trim 45 minutes (laughs) off this? Yeah, some of his films are a little long for me. That said, I did really enjoy Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which a lot of people thought was too long. So, you know, I guess there's something out there for everybody. Do you think it still holds up today, Helen, as a film? I, I think it does. Look, I think there are some things that are not great about it you know in in the sense of the women obviously not great and and look I'm not demanding that the cast be 50% female because that isn't the reality of a POW camp in World War II but you know it would almost be better without crowbarring in a white woman uh, because that's almost more offensive than just not having any I, I feel like um, so there's things like that there's also you know um, Alec Guinness's Nicholson objects to his men being used quote-unquote like coolies and again that that feels a little bit racist and a bit offensive nowadays the problem is not that they're being treated like brown people the problem is that they are being starved and yeah, abused but, you know but that's he that character oh, yeah. would have said that's that in absolutely World War II. 100% but it's yeah. it's still a little bit uncomfortable sometimes to hear so there's, there's things yeah. like that that are absolutely authentic at the time but perhaps not you know, relaxing nowadays. You're like, ooh, <laughs> mm, mm. and it's not. I'm not. You know, starting a campaign against it. It's just those things when you're watching some old films that you're like, oh, I wish, I wish that wasn't there. Helen O'Hara trying to cancel <laughs> Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh God, never, never. But yeah, but I genuinely, I think it, I think it stands up, and I think it stands up because it is complicated, because it is nuanced, because it is psychological, and it doesn't. You know, nobody is is all good or all bad. I mean, the fact that Saito goes and bursts into tears when he kind of loses his battle with Nicholson. You know, that is a human man who doesn't want to kill himself and knows he will have to if this doesn't work and who is stressed out, who is unhappy, who is not just an unthinking, unfeeling bureaucrat, um, not just a cruel taskmaster. There, there's there's something more going on there. And so it's that kind of nuance that I think makes this chef's kiss. Katie, there's probably only one way for us to uh, walk off into the sunset on this particular episode. Shall we all purse our lips as one and go? That feels good. Thank you, Helen O'Hara. Oh, a pleasure. <laughs> it's always nice to whistle on a podcast. You don't get enough, <laughs> it do is, you? It's really nice. It's really nice. <laughs> Katie, I, I will be honest, there are points in our incredible journey of nearly 120 episodes when I do also sometimes think, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? But I'm not going to fall on the detonator. No. I'm not going to blow this show up. Don't miss that plunger. (laughs) Miss that plunger. Um, No, because we have so much to live for. I mean, we have next week, which is um, the topic is the Lebanon. (laughs) The Lebanon. (laughs) (laughs) Referring not to the Human League song from 1984. No, it's referring to the 1958 Lebanon crisis. So we'll have finally, finally left 1957. However, this age, I am a little bit more interested in 1984. And And who will have won when the soldiers have gone from From the the Lebanon? Lebanon. (laughs) (laughs) The Lebanon. His hair in that video is not the peak oaky hair, is it? No, he's looking a little... uh, Mulleted. 
It's a little mullety, and also he's he's working some like uh, some stubble. He's going in the George Michael. There's nothing asymmetric about his hair, and that's what I want from Oki. I want full Nuevo Wevo. He's not <laughs> providing it, but that's because he's gone international and concerned about war-torn countries like the Lebanon. <laughs> the Lebanon. Um, I think we need to get this off our chest now because um, I don't believe our expert next week will be enchanted with our our 1984 version you're right katie but if people would like more footage of us messing around in a way that has very little relevance to the show they can follow us and watch some of our hilarious videos oh they're hilarious at spread that fire is the easiest way to do it don't build up your expectations i think we need to kind of lower the bar on this one (laughs) in terms of the hilarity and also are there videos? We don't know. It's like a, it's fun. It's a catch as catch can situation. Sometimes there's a video, sometimes there isn't. <laughs> well, do join us because we are building a club of fire mega fans. I call it a cult. For a single solitary English pound a week, you can become a member of our Friday club. Oh, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes so you can devour the podcast days before anybody else and be very, very smug and knowledgeable on Monday morning with all of that new knowledge that you've just sucked into your brain. All you have to do is subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on Apple Podcasts. And if you would like another podcast to listen to, check out Death of a Film Star. Now, this series is all about the film stars we lost too soon, their lives, their deaths. It's narrative storytelling at its most immersive, so put that wetsuit on. It's the story of Rock Hudson, Carrie Fisher, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman. Katie, little secret, I even wrote some of the episodes. Mm, You get around. (laughs) Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. We'll see you next week. See ya. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. Hello. This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.